This is episode 157 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. This episode continues our most recent event, the 2022 Annual Enrichment Conference with Jeremy Meeks. This is session two from Tuesday morning titled, We've Got a Window in Heaven. Now that's an introduction. Hope you slept well, hope your face hurts, because you're going to get punched in the mouth again. Just kidding. Maybe. So I hope uh, some of you went outside last night and proved me wrong. It was as if God used a garage door opener to pull back the clouds and we could all see the stars. And this morning we're right back to the misery of the Northwest. Sometimes I think, dear God, Should I move back here? And there are days in which it looks like, yes. And then the next day comes, and I am reminded of why I left this place and will never return. (laughs) But I'm glad you're here. (laughs) And I'm glad that uh, we are together around God's word. Just give me a second. Buenos días a mis hermanos y hermanas que están aquí, mi gente. Me gustaría predicar en español, pero mi contrato dice que tengo que predicar en inglés. Discúlpame. That was for my people. Thank you. I received that. It's cool to have um, a church gathered church community gathered of all different kinds of people from all different kinds of places, including those who speak Spanish, which is what I was just doing. If you were like, what was just going on? Um, Some of you might be wondering what the heck the Chicago course on preaching is. So let me just take the privilege of being the one standing before you with the microphone to tell you for just a minute. Uh, It is a residential training program in preaching that is Uh, one or two years long. Uh, I don't know if uh, you know this yet. You probably do, but seminary does many things well. One of them that it doesn't do well is teach you to preach. It can get, here's what seminary does, and I hope it did it for you. It can give you great conviction that God's word should be preached. It can give you uh, a couple at-bats, and it can give you a couple tools to put into practice. Uh, but I guarantee you that none of you preach more than 10 sermons, yet somehow you got a piece of paper after that that the church believes makes you a pastor. Now, everybody who has the piece of paper knows that that's not what it does. So what we're trying to do is fill the gap between theological education and weekly pulpit ministry. Uh, In the Chicago course, in the one or two-year program, it's just one year is full-time, two years is part-time, you will prepare the outlines for 240 sermons from all of the Bible. You will preach 40 times and get feedback 40 times, and it is brutality. You'll hear 300 more sermons on top of that and live in a world in which it is very weird and very unique trying 
to be an incubator or a pressure cooker to get people down the road to find their own voice, to get a handle on not just what the Bible means, but how do we communicate that to other people. So if that intrigues you, or uh, if you want to know more about what I do, or if you just have questions about preaching, preaching is a weird thing, and it's very hard. The lie is that you just get up here and speak from the Bible, right? It's not that way. It's agony. Uh, Garner Taylor calls it the sweet torture of Sunday morning. <laughs> it's true. So if you've got questions about preaching, come find me. Pray for me as uh, I preach to you this morning and then this evening. I don't know if you can hear it, but uh, my voice is not departing from me, but it is not all, not all with me. So pray that I would be able to speak today and tomorrow. Our, our value that we're focusing on here is biblically focused. And I want to think about the Bible and our churches. I think that you all came here believing, I hope, that we should focus on the Bible in our churches. I'm not so convinced, this isn't just true for you, but true for all of the church everywhere. I'm not so convinced, we are convinced, that we should be focused on all of the Bible. We won't ask for a show of hands because that would be weird, but I wonder how many of you who are preaching regularly have preached from the minor prophets in the last two years. How many of you have preached from wisdom literature and know the Psalms don't count for this one? Even the narratives, everybody in the world wants to preach the Abraham story because it's awesome. What do we do with the nasty bits? You're all ministry leaders, I'm assuming, and this is a bold assumption, that you've all read the Bible. There's lots of ugly stuff in there. The question is, should we focus on those things? I want to contend that the Bible is not only full of these kinds of texts, but the, these texts are awesome. I'm hoping that this session persuades you that even the strangest texts are beneficial for our churches. In fact, they might be the most beneficial of all. I want to do that by preaching from a well-known text, 2 Kings, chapter 6. 2 Kings, chapter 6, beginning in verse 24. I'm going to be reading through chapter 7, verse 20. 2 Kings 6, 24, through chapter 7, verse 20. I'm going to read it, I'm going to pray, and Lord willing, I'm going to preach. Here's what God's Word has to say. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, mustered an in his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. There was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for eight shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cob of dove's dung sold for five shekels of silver. Now the king of Israel was passing by on the wall. A woman cried out to him saying, Help, 
my Lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? And the king asked her, what is your trouble? She answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now as he was passing on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, may God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house. And the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of the master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord? any longer. But Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow, about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, uh, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now, come let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots, horses, and the sound of a great army so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight. And they abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And they came back and entered another tent and carried off the things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light. Punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, well, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. 
Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told to the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we're hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. One of his servants said, uh, let some of the men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king, then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel and a sea of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him. For the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand this strange text. And by understanding this strange text, understand the benefits of all the strange texts. Not only for ourselves, especially for the sake of our churches. The words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Sometimes you just got to steal titles from the Bible when they're good. So I take no credit for this. It's repeated twice in there. My title for this sermon is, We've Got a Window in Heaven. You ever been desperate for some good news? I'm convinced that the better the news, the more important it is to have it come on good authority. For example, a few months ago, my water heater went out, and I made a call to the plumbers, and the plumbers said, we will get back to you which of course in the south side of Chicago in the hood means call back tomorrow and maybe we'll ignore you again. Four days went by. I was waiting for some good news. But the reality is, especially come day four, I have a 15-year-old son. Four days in, it's like Jesus with Lazarus, he stinketh. 
I didn't care who called me. I just wanted somebody to call me with the good news that somebody was going to come and fix my water heater. It'd be a little bit different, though. My mom had a stroke. I was being treated in the hospital. I would, I would be much more desperate for good news, and I would need it on much better authority. I would want to hear it from the doctor. It would have been of little consolation to me, had that been the case of my life, for the janitor to come by and be like, I looked in the room, everything's cool. Thank you, I appreciate that, but you are an illegitimate authority. What would happen if the news were much more important and far less believable? Well, if that were the case, we would need it on great authority. We have such a text, have such a situation in this text before us this morning. I want to persuade you of this as we look at this text. That our lives depend on believing God's word, even when that word is absurd. I'm going to tell you right now that there's not going to be a lot of detailed application for your church. Because I want to drive that thing into the back of your brain and implant it in your mind that our lives, our lives here and the lives of the people in our churches, our lives depend on believing God's word, even, maybe especially when that word is absurd. That might seem obvious in a room of ministry leaders, but I'm not so sure. I wonder if any of you here barely even made it here today. Because God's word just seems so ridiculous. You, you read this and then you look at the situation in your church and go, I, I want to believe God's word. It's just absurd and I don't know if I can continue on. I'm happy to see you. I hope to make you happy in God through the preaching of this text. I hope you leave believing on great authority that you and I have a window in heaven. This text begins in verses 24 through 31. Chapter 6, with the need for salvation. Uh, the author brilliantly sets the scene by demonstrating the need for salvation. Life is bad. The Syrians are oppressing Samaria. The costs are out of control. That's verse 25. If you were like, hold on a second. Until a donkey's head was sold for eight shekels of silver. You're like, I've never looked to buy a donkey's head. I don't even know what eight shekels of silver are. So let me do some work for you. That's expensive. Now, I also, I've never tried to buy bird poop. But uh, right there, if 
five shekels of silver. Still don't know what a shekel is. Doesn't matter. All I know is it's really expensive. Costs are out of control. Makes sense. Why does it make sense? Because the Syrians are at the gate. And the king is helpless. How bad are things? Oh, they're all the way bad. Maybe you caught it when I read it the first time, but I'm going to read it again. Verse 28. What is your trouble? The woman answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Oh, that's bad. That's all the way bad. And it breaks the king. But it breaks him in the wrong way. At first, everything looks great. Verse 30, rips his clothes like Superman, and he's got some sackcloth, which is the sign of repentance, and you go, this is going to be great. And then, unfortunately, he opens his mouth. I wonder if you caught it the first time we read it. What the heck? It's right there. Verse 31, may God do so to me and to more also. If the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today, you go, what are you talking? We're talking about eating babies and you want to go kill a prophet? Why is that the response? Well, let me quickly summarize the end of chapter 6 in order to understand why the king would respond in this way. You see, the Syrian army, before they came to Samaria, had previously come to kill Elisha. It's a hilarious story. you got to laugh when the Bible's funny, by the way. They come to kill Elisha, and Elisha prays, and the army is blinded, and then like St. Patrick, Elisha leads this blind Syrian army right into Samaria. And this same king, in this text, asks Elisha if he can kill the Syrian army. And Elisha goes, no. Feed him. Give him something to drink. Summarized right there in verse 23, right before our story. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Amen, right? Ooh, but then you got verse 24. Afterward, the Syrian army could have been dealt with back then, but it's Elisha's fault that these people are now attacking his people, so now we're going to kill him. The king is powerless and the people are in peril. There's clearly a need for salvation. So now what? The curtain, as it were, falls on the stage. And you and I are left thinking in the dark, what kind of hope is there when the world is torn apart and political leaders are helpless? The question 
our churches are asking right now. Well, we've seen that there's a need for salvation. But the chunk of this text in the middle, chapter 6, verse 32, through chapter 7, verse 15, shows us a crazy salvation. Curtain raises, and it's a humorous moment. The new scene is that Elisha is chilling with the elders, just hanging out, having a good old time. And then he's like, oh, hold on a second. Do you hear that? Shut the door. Hold the door closed. <laughs> just hold it closed. Why is the king dispatched an assassin? It's verse 33, right there. This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I, being the king, wait for the Lord any longer? This is some sad desperation. An impotent king, frustrated with God, enabled to fix the situation, so scheming to do the one thing that's in his power, or that he thinks is in his power. Kill the man of God. You might be less violent than the king, but I wonder, do you identify with the king's frustrations? I know I do. I mean, some of y'all have deacons, so I know you do. Hmm. Go into the office on Monday morning, secretly have the hit list that's hidden in your pocket. Like, nope, nope, I got to pray for him. I can't kill him. We're amongst friends. You can be honest. See, I may not be able to control everything, but when things are spiraling out of control in ministry or in life in general, I am tempted to do anything just to try to get something done. <laughs> Elders are holding the door closed. I noticed Elisha's response. Hear the word of the Lord, chapter 7, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And you're like, okay, first of all, I don't understand anything about the bird poop and how much that costs, and now I've got to deal with other things. Like, what is going on? Let me tell you what this means, what the word means, in, in just to boil it down, it's this. Things will be substantially better tomorrow. Let me tell you what God does not say through Elisha. Tomorrow, everything is going to be perfect. Or, tomorrow, things are going to be back to normal. Nope. It's tomorrow. Things are going to be substantially better. Friends, God does not always bring a resolution to our problems right now. Sometimes you got to wait a minute. And this word is of particular importance right now. Life seems to be oriented, kind of, sort of, maybe, towards normal-ish. Salvation sometimes takes a second. God doesn't always turn it all around immediately. That's God's word. 
to the would-be assassin. What is the would-be assassin's response? Well, unfortunately, it sounds a lot like what my response would be. Chapter 7, verse 2, Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make a window in heaven, could this thing be? It's always hard when you're reading the Bible, when it's the bad guys who say the things that you say. <laughs> you see, I think we all live far too often as if there weren't a window in heaven. Or that we live in a closed universe. There might be a God somewhere, but he's way up there, and I'm down here. This is the way our people are tempted to live as well. God might exist, but it might not matter. In other words, you and I often live as functional atheists. Thankfully, God's prophet has some news for those of us who tend to think like that. The assassin has spoken, and Elisha comes right over the top. Chapter 7, verse 2. Elisha said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. <laughs> this is some serious business. Whatever could Elisha mean by this, it's not exactly clear here. We'll see it in a minute, but this much is clear. According to Elisha, God's word must be believed, even when that word is absurd. Even when we're tempted to question, is there a window in heaven? The word comes on good authority. According to Elisha, it comes from God himself. So here's the question that you and I are always asking, and the scripture is faithful to answer here, but it's a real question, and we shouldn't shy away from the question, is God's word reliable? I mean, why focus on something that's not reliable? Is it reliable? Well, the text is going to tell us that God's word is reliable, but in a rather interesting way. The camera pans from Elisha and the would-be assassin at the door to four of the most hilarious characters in the Old Testament. The four stooges of 2 Kings. We're outside the walls of the city, and you might be thinking, hold on a second, there's the army over there, and they're starving people inside, so why are they outside the gates of the city? That seems like a terrible idea. Of all the places you could post up, why would you do it outside the walls? You should be inside the walls. Well, the law of God demanded that lepers be kept outside of the city. Leviticus chapter 13. Why? Simply this, public health. Leprosy was all kinds of skin diseases, communicable through contact. 
This is an old school style of quarantine. That's all this is. The lepers respond in a hilarious way. It makes all the sense in the world. Look, if we stay here, we're going to die. We go inside. I mean, they're eating babies on the other side of the wall, so we're not going in there. And if we stay here, we're going to die. So let's go over to the Syrians. Maybe they'll feed us, which is an absurd idea. But they're like, what do we got to lose? The worst it could be is that they kill us. When you're preaching narrative, if, you're, if you stink at preaching narrative, I know some of you do. Because lots of preachers struggle with narrative. We're not taught to preach narrative very well. But here's something that will be helpful to you. It's a free tip. You didn't even pay for this, but here it is. Just imagine it like a movie in your own head and then get into the funny parts of it. And this is the funniest part of the whole story. So the four lepers, they got body parts falling off and all kinds of stuff. Just kind of like wander through the desert. You know, got some crazy kind of music. But then the camera jumps to the Syrian camp. And what the Syrians hear is the most ridiculous thing in the world when what's actually happening is just four lepers like wandering around the desert. Like, I wonder if we're, I don't know. High five. And what they hear in the camp of the Syrians is a mighty army. And they book it. And the four lepers come wandering in. Hold on a second. They go into a tent. They're like gorging themselves. They take the stuff and they hide it like squirrels in the fall. And they do it again. Again, you got to laugh when the Bible is funny. Because these are the four least likely human beings to beat a massive army. They didn't do anything, really. They just walked over there. They catch themselves. They realize during this celebration in verse 9 that they should go back and tell the king so they don't get in trouble. <laughs> like six-year-olds. So they go back. Notice verse 10 of chapter 7. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Can you imagine being a gatekeeper? You're like, who are those four non-horsemen? Stump, those are the idiots. I, I wonder where the lepers went. You're like, yo, lepers, where did you go? Don't you know the Syrians are over there? They're like, no, nah, man, we were over there, and they're gone. This is great news on questionable authority. Hmm. They relay it to the king. They have to. It's the, it's the job of the people up on the gate tower to go tell the king. So they go tell the king, and the king responds prudently. Verse 12. No, I know this trick that they're playing. They're hiding so that they can draw us out of the city this is how desperately crazy this guy is, because they want to get inside the city. Thankfully, the king has some good advisors. They're like, bro, we're eating babies up in here. You think they want to get in here? 
Let's, like, everybody's dead. And we're all going to die, so let's just send somebody out there to go check. The king wisely lets them go. Because desperate times call for desperate measures. And the news from an unlikely source was better than they could have possibly imagined. Notice verse 15. This is amazing. So they went after them as far as the Jordan. And behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. In other words, the Syrians had started running and kept on running, chucking off everything they had just to get out of Dodge. Friends, apparently you and I have a window in heaven. We're told by this humorous and interesting story that what God said would happen, happened. His word is reliable. How does the story end? Is, is everything happily ever after? Well, not exactly. We've seen a need for salvation. We've seen the crazy salvation that was provided. But in verses 16 through 20, we see that it's a sobering salvation. Delightful for the people. Notice verse 16. Their fortunes are completely Change. The people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Things were substantially better. They weren't perfect. But they had been spared. Why? God said it was going to happen. It was now clear that Elisha is a good authority. He proclaimed the word of the Lord, and now it was being made manifest. The people now knew what you and I need to know, that we've got a window in heaven. While it was delightful for the people, it was deadly for the king's captain. The writer is such a genius that he decided to keep in his back pocket a tiny little detail. the beginning of the story, notice verse 17. Seems like the most insignificant detail. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. You go, so what? Well, when the good news came and the people rushed out, they trampled him to death. Why? I'll just keep reading. And the people trampled him in the gates that he died as the man of God had said and the king came down to him. He had not believed God's word and he died. Friends, do you think it's any different for you and I? Like, do you actually believe your life depends on believing God's word? If it doesn't, you'll never be focused on it. And your people won't either. I wish I could tell you that this is the only time in all of the Bible that somebody dies because they didn't believe the word of the Lord. 
But the reality is, I don't have time to go through all the stories because there's too many of them. You think you're better than them? I do. I think I'm better than them all the time. Yeah, I mean, they're just chumps. They didn't try hard enough. Watch this. Friends, our lives depend on believing God's word, even when that word is absurd. But can I tell you, while this has always been true of God's people, you and I should believe this all the more because we have a better word with better promises, one that is far more absurd. Our lives depend on believing it. What is that word? Well, we find it on the lips of a pretty good authority. I wonder if you heard of him. His name is Jesus. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. This is the word. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way that you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, that is as absurd as it gets. Jesus saying, there's only one way to God, and it's me. In other words, I'm the window in heaven. <laughs> you go, like, here's the thing. Like, if your people believe the Bible, be thankful. Because this word is ridiculous. And if anybody ever gets converted in your ministry, thank God, because this word is absurd. Jesus, access to God, the one who stars in Planet Nine, and all that stuff. That one, Jesus, is the window in heaven? According to Jesus, he's like, yeah, that's me. It's much better news than Elisha. It's not news that things will be substantially better but that in Jesus, things will be better than you and I could ever imagine. Peace, hope, security, rest, and happiness forever in the presence of God through him. <laughs> That's as absurd as it gets. And we would need great reason to believe that ridiculous statement. Why should I believe Jesus? Why should you believe Jesus? Why should I keep on believing in Jesus? Why is Jesus a good authority? Well, I, I agree that the promise is massive and we would need it on great authority. And like in our passage this morning, we learn why we should believe on the basis of the testimony of people less likely than lepers. It was early on a Sunday morning. 
as my friend Soup likes to say on the south side of Chicago, I don't know what time it was. It was just early. Whatever time it was. It was early on a Sunday morning when a few women walked to a tomb. So worthless as authorities that their testimony would not even be accepted in a court of law. They might as well have been lepers outside the walls of the city. The situation of the people was desperate. The Romans were oppressing the mess out of everyone. The king was powerless, and the one guy who said he could fix it all was dead. Sure, he said over and over again that he was going to die, but he also said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that he was the window in heaven, and now he was just dead. And these unlikely witnesses came up on his tomb and found that he wasn't there anymore. There they heard from an angel, Matthew chapter 28, verses 5 and 6, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Why should you believe that Jesus is in the window of heaven? Simply this, because Jesus, before it ever happened, called his shot. He said, oh, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again. And then he did it, just as he said. These women brought that great news to the whole world. They weren't anybody special. And you aren't either. And I'm not either. We don't have to be special. We have Great news on the basis of the greatest authority. That news is very simply that Jesus is the window in heaven. And thus our lives depend on believing God's word, even when that word is absurd. Let's pray. God, we pray you would help us to believe. We have great news on great authority. We need to believe this, and our people need to believe this. And, and we can be so drawn to so many other things. Our focus can be on everything else and Many things matter in the life of a church. Many of my brothers and sisters here today are even now wrestling with situations in the church, problems in the church, questions about the church. And those things matter. But as we pray and wait think and strategize, would you help us to remember that our lives depend on believing in your word? And if we miss that, we miss everything. We thank you that we have good reason to believe it. We thank you that Jesus is the window in heaven. Amen.